What do we do with pastors who abuse their authority? Because, frankly, each of us has either experienced abusive pastoral leadership or we know of clear cases where it has happened. And once we've been abused by a pastor, then we tend to broad brush all pastors and put them in the same category. That is, we attribute ill will and evil motives to all pastors or to our pastor, and as, re- as a result, we want to abandon the whole office because, you know, that one pastor over there was abusive in the way that he did leadership. And what I'm talking about is abuse here could include um, some kind of immoral abuse, but, but I, I'm also talking about just in the leadership style, forcing his will on people... Um, um, guilting people into to doing things, using evil means in order to accomplish what he sees as a good end. That's what I mean by abusive leadership. And and what we tend to do is we see that kind of thing in one pastor and we just think, well, then all of the pastors are going to do that to some degree or we need to protect ourselves from that. So in order to do that, we need to kind of maybe get rid of the pastoral office. But what we're doing there is we're trying to avoid one ditch of falling under pastoral abuse, which is good. We do want to avoid that as much as we can. Only to drive into another ditch, which is abandoning the pastoral office, which is abandoning God's design. God has said that the way that the church is going to be led is through the leadership of a pastor. And so we're fools to do so. To say, well, you know, we've got to avoid all that over there, so we're just going to abandon um, any kind of leadership, and we'll just move to some other kind of style. Instead, what we need to do is acknowledge that there's nothing inherently wrong with the office of a pastor, and we must acknowledge that God has necessarily linked authority to the office itself. In other words, when you choose a pastor to serve at this church, you don't technically delegate any authority to him. You might think, okay, I have... As a congregation, we have the authority and we're passing on authority to the pastor, but that's technically not what's happening. What you're doing is you're putting the pastor into the office, which the office inherently has the authority in it. And you have the responsibility to choose who will fill that office because with that office comes the authority. And the the reason we know that is because the authority is given in the Scriptures. So the problem is not the office, is it? God actually designed the office of the pastor as the means by which the church would be led. The problem is the abuse of the office, the abuse of the authority. And so what we should do, instead of broad-brushing all pastors or abandoning the office altogether for some kind of preaching that, you know, is kind of like an Amish approach, this is where some people turn, you know, when they, well, I can't have any pastoral authority over me, so I'm going to turn to kind of an Amish approach, which is, You know, each week a different father gets up and he gives a lesson from the Bible. Instead, we need to, if there is abuse in the office of the pastor and the leadership of the pastor, we need to confront that pastor, don't we? And potentially remove him. And as a congregation, you have the ability and the responsibility to do so. Because God's plan for the church... It's for godly, gifted men to rule the church. And I believe that in our text tonight, 1 Timothy 5, 
Verse 17 teaches that, along with a number of other passages. And if that's true, then what Paul's going to tell us tonight is that the church must care for its pastor. The church must care for its pastor financially and, and uh, fairly. So we'll look at both of those tonight. So let's look at our text and make sure that what I'm saying is from the Scriptures. So you make sure you're following along in your, your Bible. Don't take my word for what I'm saying. Make sure that, that what I'm saying comes from the Scriptures. Beginning in verse 17. This is the Word of God. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest uh, rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. So Paul is concerned about the care for pastoral leadership. He he wants the church to recognize that the church must care for its pastor or pastors. The church must care for its pastor. And I've drawn some of this outline from my um, longtime pastor, Dr. Doran. And um, so, beginning in verses 17 and 18, we see that the church must provide for its pastor. And here we're talking about financially. The church must provide for its pastor financially. In verses 17 and 18. Now, before we get into the reasoning behind it, verse 18, notice, begins with the word for. So he's going to say why it's important that we actually doubly honor our pastor. Um, Before we get into that, we need to look at verse 17 because that's kind of the foundation of this expectation or command or obligation. And what we should see is that God's plan for the church is for godly gifted men to rule the church. God's plan for the church is for godly, gifted men to rule the church. And there are two parts to this verse that need explanation. First, is Paul talking about two kinds of pastors? Those who rule well and those who don't. In other words, those who rule well doubly honor them. Those who don't rule well, well, don't doubly honor them. Just singly honor them or don't honor them all. Is that what he's saying? So are are there two groups there that he's talking about? The second question is, are there two categories of pastors those who preach and teach at the end of verse 17 and those who don't. Is there an implication there, right? So doubly honor those, especially doubly honor those who preach and teach. But then there's these other categories of elders that you don't have to honor as much. They're the non-preaching, non-teaching elders, what, what people call in our day lay elders. So are there two categories? I'm going to argue that everything in this verse is the description of one kind of pastor and the only kind of pastor that there are not two kinds of pastors, that is, those who rule well and those who don't. But he's saying, he's just using this as a description for what we should expect from pastors, that, that all pastors should rule well. I would suggest that those who fail to rule well are not fulfilling their responsibility to be a pastor because all pastors should rule well. And if they're not ruling well, then they shouldn't be a pastor at all, and that's what verses 19 through 21 are about. That is, you need to remove them. You need to challenge them. You need to rebuke them. 
there's a proper way to do that, but, but you need to approach them. They are not God's pastors. Of course, they don't need to be doubly honored because they're not legitimately fulfilling the responsibility of their office. So that's why I would say there's only one kind of pastors, not those who rule well and those who don't. He's simply just saying there are pastors that need to be honored. And all pastors should be those who rule well. What about the second question? Are there two categories of pastors? Those who are preaching pastors and those who are lay pastors. Some people take this text to mean that there are elders who rule well, which include a subcategory of two kinds of elders, preaching elders and lay elders, or non-teaching elders. And they go on to say that, that only preaching elders should be paid, because that's what the text says. So the ones that we doubly honor by paying them are the ones who actually preach and teach. The ones who are lay elders, and what they do is they have responsibility to administer things within the church. So you're going to find this is a very popular um, what I would call fad um, that is going on in a lot of churches today. Uh, you have the preaching elders. They all have to be paid because the scriptures say here in First Timothy 5. And then these other lay elders, they kind of had administrative work, but you know, you got to get a job on your own. We're not going to pay you. In some cases they do, but most cases they don't. But grammatically it doesn't make There are two problems with this view. Number one, grammatically it doesn't make sense. This kind of view where we separate Preaching elders and lay elders doesn't make sense. Notice in verse 17, the elders who rule well to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, when we look at especially, we think, okay, well, this is a subcategory. We have those who rule well, and then you have this especially category, those who preach and teach, and then this not especially. They're, they're not that special. They're lay elders. You know, they're not, uh, we're, we're not going to talk about them type thing. But, but I think what Paul's doing here is he's actually using the word especially as a way to describe the elders who rule well. So I think it would be better to, to read it this way. The elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, namely, so who are these elders who rule well? Well, it's namely all elders. They are those who preach and teach. So the first reason I would say is grammatically, it doesn't make sense to make two different categories. And then secondly, I would say rationally, it doesn't make sense. Or intellectually. I mean, if you just use common sense, it doesn't, doesn't fit. That is, the, the other category that's not listed, this lay elders or non-preaching elders, is actually an oxymoron. That is, there is no such thing in the Bible of a non-teaching elder. How do we know that? Because of chapter 3, verse 2, right? What are the qualifications for an elder? An overseer. He must be able to what? He must be able to teach. So if you have a guy here who's just good at administrative type things, you, you know, you get this business guy in here. He's good at handling, you know, scheduling and, and dealing with um, uh, personal issues that are going on and social issues that are going on within the church. If he's good at that, but he can't teach, then he's not equipped to be an elder. He is not an elder, according to the Scriptures. So there should not be two categories of a preaching elder and a lay elder. Now, does that mean that every church needs to have only one pastor? That's not what I'm saying. There are um, other churches, and wisely, I mean, even in the Scriptures, you have apparently a, a, a group of pastors that, that are working in a number of different churches, but, and that's fine. But each of them has to have that qualification met. They have to be able to teach. All the qualifications need to be met in 1 Timothy 3, but, but that one included. 
that they have to be able to teach. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to teach or preach at every service, but they have to be teaching in some capacity. They have to be used in that function or else they're not an elder at all. And so this lay elder idea, I think, is actually rationally, it doesn't make sense. So here's the point. God has designed that the church be led by godly, gifted men who would rule the church. And I use that rule advisedly. The word rule I use advisedly because it comes right from verse 17. Right? The elders who rule well. One of the responsibilities of the elder, the pastor, the overseer, is to rule, to govern the church. And that statement might rub us the wrong way because we don't like that word rule. Right? It sounds abrasive and and bordering on abusive. We don't like to subject ourselves to other people. But this is what the text says. In fact, two of the three names that describe the office of the elder have to do with this idea of leading or ruling. Right? So you have elder that simply has to do more with age or maturity. And then you have pastor What kind of implication do you have there? That he's actually leading, he's actually ruling, leading his sheep, and then overseeing, obviously oversight. He's he's looking over the affairs of the church and and, um, leading the church in a proper direction. There's an implication of leadership there as well. And this ruling function is not new to Paul. Paul's not just coming up in 1 Timothy and saying, hey, make sure that these elders are ruling well. This is a pattern in the early church in Acts 6. It was the apostles who led the church to select the deacons, right? They were the ones who came up with the idea and decided that it would be good for the church to select deacons to, to serve the church. Acts 14.23, the church is, is not a leaderless group there where only Christ is the head. You know, I might like to say, well, we have no leader but Christ. And it's true that Christ is our ultimate leader, but the way that God leads the church, the way that Christ leads His church is through godly men who are appointed. That's why these men were appointed at the various churches to rule the church, to lead the church. Acts 20, 28, you have the elders from Ephesus that are set up as a result of the Holy Spirit's work. So this leadership structure is not something that was made up by man. It was not something that we kind of just came up with. Hey, this would be a good way to kind of streamline things. We don't have as many um, issues. No, this is something that was set up by the Holy Spirit. So we might look back at the book of Acts and say, well, that's just all descriptive. You know, that's just a description of what has happened. But notice these passages in 1 Timothy that prescribe what must be done. Turn back to chapter 3 and verse 14. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the pillar, uh, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And what was Paul talking about just prior to this? Here he's saying, I want you to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. And right before this, he's talking about the role, the qualifications of pastors and deacons. So the pastors play a key role in, in being able to lead the church to actually conduct itself in the way that it ought to. And then in our passage, chapter 5, Paul is calling the congregation to respond to them in a proper way. God's plan for the church is for godly men to direct its affairs. 
there is an aspect of rule that the pastor has over the church. There's an exercise of authority. So, God's plan for the church is for godly, gifted men to rule the church. And so that means that because God has established it this way, that the church has responsibility to recognize their role. That God's plan for the church is not just to be ruled by godly, gifted pastors, but also that God's plan for the church is to honor their pastor. God's plan for the church is to honor the pastor. And the way that Paul puts it in verse 17 is that they should doubly honor him. Now, why is it that pastors should be doubly honored? Notice, Paul says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy. They're to be treated as if they, they deserve double honors. Not because they do, not because they're better than any of you, but because of the nature of the office. Right? Remember what the end of the verse says, verse 17, because they work hard at preaching and teaching. So one of the ways that we advance the work of Christ and the, advance the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives is by honoring the people who actually teach us the Scriptures. So how do we do this? How do we show double honor? Verse 18 seems to make it clear that one of the ways that you honor your pastor is by paying him. That's what these um, proofs in verse 18 are about. We'll get to that in just a second. This is similar to what we saw in verses 3 to 16, right? Honor widows who are widows indeed. And how do we honor them? Well, one of the ways that we honor them is by providing for them financially when they're in a time of crisis when they don't have family to care for themselves. So we honor, one of the ways that we honor widows is by paying them. We help them financially. And I think there's a similar connection here in verses 17 and 18. Now, some people take this verse to mean this double honor because it's connected to payment means that every pastor needs to make twice as much as the average person in the congregation. They need to receive double payment. I would suggest to you that's not what Paul is saying. It seems to me that the double honor has to do with the two ways in which you honor him. You honor him with your with with help providing financially for him. And then secondly, you honor him with respect. And this respect is going to be talked about in verses 19 through 21, specifically in how you handle his sin. Um, So that's the way I think that we doubly honor our pastor. We do it financially, and then we do it fairly. That is, we we treat his sin um, properly. We'll get to that when we get to verses 19 and following. So why should we doubly honor our pastor? Why should we do it? Verse 18 gives the reason. Notice the first word in verse 18, for. Here's the reason why that pastors should be worthy of double honor um, because they are preaching and teaching. Four. And verse 18 gives three. Um, let's see. Three or two. Gives a couple. Let's just say a couple. We'll find out as we go. Uh, I don't have them on there. Um, number one. Elders should be paid for their work because the Old Testament has given us the example. Elders should be paid for their work because the Old Testament has given us the example. Consider the Old Testament law which makes a prohibition against farmers muzzling their oxen while they're working for them. So let's look at the text, verse 18. For, the Scripture says, here's why you ought to financially provide for your pastor. For, the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. 
This is from Deuteronomy 25.4. Oxen in the ancient Near East were used to tread on the grain to remove the grain from the, the husk. And so Paul is saying there's an obvious principle that was set up that was kind of baked into the law of Moses there. And it is that workers, including animals, ought to share in the fruit of their labor. So don't put a muzzle over their mouth so they can't enjoy some of the fruit of their labor. As they go around, they're kind of just constantly going around, stomping on this grain, around and around and around. And eventually they just reach down and grab some of the, some of the grain for themselves, and that's completely appropriate. Paul doesn't stop there. He says the point of that law for oxen was not that God is concerned primarily about oxen, although he is concerned about them, but primarily because he's concerned about he's concerned about humans. It's for the sake of humans that whoever works should work in expectation that they will be rewarded for their labor. Right? Consider um, well, let's move on to the next one then I'll give you some other examples. So first, elders should be paid for their work because the Old Old Testament has given us the example. Secondly, elders should be paid for their work because Christ has commanded it at the end of verse 18. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. The laborer is worthy of his wages. This is apparently a quotation not from the Old Testament, but from Jesus in Luke 10 and Matthew 10. So if the Old Testament is enough for you, And how about a commandment directly from our Lord? In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the disciples in pairs to various cities to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. And he says, don't take any money while you go. Don't even take a bag for money. Don't take a bag for supplies. Don't take an extra coat. Why, Jesus? Why would we go without money or a suitcase? Far away from home. And the answer is in Matthew 10.10. And Jesus says, because the worker is worthy of his wages. In other words, you disciples, you 70 disciples who are going out for the sake of my name, for the work of the gospel, you have the right to be cared for by those who will come to Christ and share in your ministry. So as you provide something for them, you ought to be able to share in some of that. We have the same idea uh, again in Luke 10, as I mentioned. Paul mentions a similar argument in 1 Corinthians 9. We were just there not too long ago on Wednesday night, so let me just remind you some of his proofs for why pastors should be paid for their ministry. Those who proclaim the gospel have the right to be paid for their ministry, 1 Corinthians 9:14. Paul there gives three proofs from rational wisdom. He says, what about a soldier? I mean, it, does a soldier have to bring a check for his expenses when he enlists into the military? Does he have to go out and get a second job while he's training or fighting? No, soldiers get paid for their service. They, they share in some of the, the fruit of their labor. How about a vineyard owner? Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 9. Does a vineyard owner have to sell all of his crops or is it okay for him to grab a few of the grapes for himself and eat them? And then he goes on and says, what about a shepherd? Is a shepherd not allowed? Is he disallowed from taking some milk from his own goats? We could use other examples like a baker. Is he not allowed to taste some of his own frosting when he makes cookies? Is he not allowed to save some of the cookie dough for himself at the end? Right? A, a, a laborer is worthy, a worker is worthy of his wages. 
And in 1 Corinthians 9.12, Paul says that others share the right to be paid. And he goes on to say that if, he, if others do, then certainly Paul has the right to all the more. Apollos and Peter were paid for their ministries, and so why shouldn't Paul be paid for his? Of course, Paul you know, rejects um, much of the wages that are offered to him uh, for his spread of the gospel. Paul also uses the example of Levitical priests. In 1 Corinthians 9.13, he says, What about the Levitical priests? Did the Levitical priests ever have the ability or... Um, were, they, were they ever allowed to eat from some of the showbread? They share in some of their own labor. What about the sacrifices? Were the sacrifices all for the worshiper only? Or did the priests also share in them? The point is, is that we, that a worker is worthy of his wages. He, he ought to be able to share in, in some of the labor that he has done. So don't muzzle an ox and make sure that a worker gets paid. So one of the ways that the church honors its pastor is by paying him, by providing for him financially. The second way that the church honors its pastor is by protecting its pastor. The church must protect its pastor, verses 19 through 21. That is that he must be treated fairly when it comes to sin issues. That's what these verses are about. So three things with regard to this. First, Accusations toward elders must be handled objectively. Now, I'm using the word elders, pastors, and overseers interchangeably. And the reason I do that is because the Bible does, Acts 20. You just read through Acts 20, you're going to see that those three terms are all used in the same, um, same section. There's basically a couple paragraphs there. You can find it. Um, and they're all referring to the same person, same office. Okay, so that's why I'm not talking about three different kinds of people, um, a pastor is an elder, is an overseer. Okay, but, but accusations towards pastors or elders must be handled objectively. That is with two or three witnesses. Some pastors are worthy of honor. Other, other pastors are worthy of discipline and, and, and being rebuked. That is, a pastor may need to receive a rebuke because of their unrepentant sin. And if that's the case, as a church, we need to make sure that we handle that properly, not carelessly. Because there is a real possibility that the charge may be false. And so we can't just take one person's word for it. We need to make sure that it's done fairly. It's substantiated. So a pastor must not be accused individually. Notice this um, text, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, two or three witnesses does not mean that okay, one accuses the pastor... And now he wants to bring a couple of witnesses. And so he brings one or two more with him. And now this same person accuses the pastor again while these other two watch. That's not the point. Okay, that's not what the two, and th- two or three witnesses are for. And that's not what they were for in the Old Testament. What were they for in the Old Testament? Right? Did two or three witnesses in the Old Testament were additional witnesses to what actually happened? Right? They were corroborating evidence towards what actually took place. This, is, this principle is established long before pastors were established, but it was established in the Old Testament. And I think it's perpetuated here in the New Testament by the Holy Spirit in order to protect the pastor against unwarranted, uh, an unwarranted or un, undeserved smear campaign. Right? Consider it only takes one disgruntled 
person who carelessly tosses around unsubstantiated ideas to destroy the reputation of the pastor and because the pastor is the leader of the church to destroy the reputation of the church. And so the principle is set up for the church to know how to handle situations when there is an accusation against the pastor. And what Paul is telling Timothy is don't accept when one disgruntled person comes and has an accusation against him. Make sure that there is corroborating evidence, that there, are more than one, there, there is more than one person who can affirm that this is the case. And the principle is, seems to be very clear from this verse. Don't accept a singular accusation. You might be thinking, well, how come, how come the pastor gets special treatment? You know? My response would be, what's special about it? What happens when someone makes an accusation against you? Do we accept an accusation against you? Does the church as a whole accept an accusation against you on the basis of one witness? And the answer should be, we, we shouldn't, right? The way that the Scriptures have set it up is in Matthew chapter 18, when there is a person who is living in unrepentant sin, you go to him. And then you take another one or two with you as a means not to, uh, not to again, not to have just the one person accused and the other two watch, but to actually see whether or not this person is responsive. You know, has he affirmed that he's actually committed these sins? Or has it been clear from his actions that he's committed these sins? And now we have two or three. And what are the purpose of those two or three? It leads to the third step, right? In Matthew 18, which is to take it before whom? The church. And so the church can't just take an accusation on the basis of one person. It has to take it on the basis of two or three, right? So I would say to you that the way that you treat an accusation against the pastor is the way you ought to treat everyone and the accusation against anyone on the basis of two or three witnesses. There has to be clear unrepentance. There has to be a clear violation of, of, um, of the qualifications that have been set up for a pastor or clear violation of, of the commands of Scripture. So the church must protect its pastors. Accusations toward elders must be handled objectively. Secondly, Rebuke of sinning elders must be done publicly. So in order to see why I state it this way, we need to understand what the word those in verse 20 means. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. So we might take this verse and just rip it out of its context and say, okay, anyone who's living in sin, any who continues in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. So it's like any person who's in that category. We want to publicly rebuke them. Um, and I think there may be some application there, but that's not what the text is saying. In the context, what we're talking about is pastors. And we're talking about the sin of pastors, or the alleged sin of pastors. So, that, that when the accusation against the pastor is legitimate, and the, the church has handled it properly, they've accepted the accusation on the basis of two or three witnesses, then the next step is the church must publicly rebuke him. The church must publicly rebuke him. Paul is talking about how to handle sinning pastors. Pastors who continue on in sin. So I would suggest to you that the those in verse 20 is referring to pastors. Those pastors who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. 
Why? Why such severe treatment? I mean, how humiliating, embarrassing. Well, part of it is for the sake of the elder. The elder is held to a higher standard and therefore should be publicly confronted for his unrepentant sin. But notice the reason that that Paul gives in the text. So that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Now, he could be talking about the rest of the elders, other pastors in the church, or he could just be saying the rest of the congregation. And I think he's talking about the rest of the congregation would be fearful of sinning. Because notice he says in the middle of the verse, rebuke in the presence of all. It sounds like he's saying in the presence of the whole congregation, rebuke these sinning pastors, these unrepentant sinning pastors, so that the rest of the congregation will be fearful of sinning. And isn't that the nature of sins that are publicly exposed? There's a sense in which we are all we all have this healthy sense of fear. Like, okay, now I need to look at myself. I don't want to be in that position. And especially if, if my pastor can head down that road. What is the possibility that I could as well, right? And so Paul says this is serious stuff. It ought to have a quickening effect on the rest of the church. It ought to sober us up to the reality of falling into sin ourselves. Paul does this kind of public rebuke to Peter. Remember when he was treating um, Gentiles differently when Jews were around than when they weren't in Galatians chapter 2. Thirdly, confrontation of sinning elders must be done fairly. Confrontation of sinning elders must be done fairly. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. The reason I say fairly is because of that last phrase, without partiality, without favoritism. So when you do confront a sinning elder, you need to do it fairly. In verse 21, Paul adds a strong warning about the seriousness of this whole process. I mean, how much stronger can he say, do this fairly? Notice what he says here at the beginning of the verse. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, Christ Jesus, and His chosen angels. So who's watching this whole process going down? God the Father, Christ Jesus, and His chosen angels, at the very least, they're all watching this. So we don't want to abuse our, right, as a congregation, we don't want to abuse our responsibility of caring for our pastor, of honoring him. And one of the ways that you honor him is by treating him fairly with regard to his sin, impartially, without bias. So that means don't let your personal prejudices falsely accuse, uh, falsely cause you to accuse your pastor to do so against the principles prescribed. And also, don't use, allow your, your... So in other words, don't go too far and falsely accuse him. Make sure it's a legitimate accusation. But also, don't let your personal preferences or biases towards your pastor um, prevent you from approaching him about real sin. Right? You could have this other extreme over here where it's like, well, you know, I don't want, you know, I really like him. He's a nice guy, and I, I don't want him to get mad, and it wouldn't be helpful for me if, if I did this, and so I'm just going to let him go on to that. So don't let your prejudices do that. Instead, without partiality, approach him on his sin and do so in a way that's fair because, after all, God and 
Jesus and all the angels are watching. So a couple uh, points of application here. Closing number one. Accept the good structure that God has designed for your spiritual health. Accept the good structure that God has designed for your spiritual health. God has designed that the church would function and grow through the leadership of a godly and gifted men who would, cho- who would be chosen by you to be your pastor. Our society wants you to think that, that all authority is evil by nature. Our society wants you to think that authority by nature is abusive. And so, so that we then as church members should have cynical, skeptical approach to all leadership. Now, you know, we ought to all be equal, right? It's true that we all are equal in quality and nature in the eyes of God, but we're not all equal functionally, are we? There are some who are designed to be leaders over us. And we were made to follow. And we follow best when we have godly, gifted leaders to do so. And so, accept that role that God has given to you to be a follower of me as I follow Christ. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey and submit to your pastors because they have watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And then listen to this next part. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this will be unprofitable for you. By nature, we want to fight the power. But God has carefully and thoughtfully placed the power of this church in the office of the pastor. And that's God's design. And so you should do your part to let me do my job with joy. And not with grief. Because that would be unprofitable for you. And that leads to our second application, which is to doubly honor your pastor, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that Paul is saying pay your pastor double what the average person in your church is making. I think that doubly has to do with honor him with regard to how you care for him financially, honor him with how you care for him with regard to his sin, fairly. Every pastor has the right to be paid for his ministry. Now, please don't hear me preach this message because I'm looking for more money or because I feel like I have been inadequately cared for. I'm not. I don't tell you often enough that I appreciate your willingness to give to this church. And if you have looked at the budget, you know that a large portion of your giving to the general funds of this church goes to provide for my salary. And so when you give to this church, you help free me up to have time to study the scriptures. That otherwise I would have to get another job or, or you know, um, get a job that requires more hours and have less time to study the Scriptures and less time to think about how to best lead you. Lead you to greater health and spiritual success. And that's what I desire to do. And you are the catalyst by which I can do that. And so I, I am grateful for, for how you have honored me in this way. Thank you for fulfilling your responsibility. Secondly, every pastor has the right to be respected for his ministry. The respect for a pastor can come in a number of ways, but the flow of the text seems to indicate that the respect that Paul is calling for is in specifically how you handle my sin and my alleged sin. You know what I mean by that? Someone brings up an accusation. How you respond to that? Do you initially say, I, I, I see that fully or I'm, I'm totally on your side? Or are you willing to accept that kind of accusation without um, two or three witnesses? Please understand that if I am sinning against God, 
then who else is going to point out my sin other than you? So you have a strong, uh, a, a severe responsibility here, right? God, Jesus, the angels are watching. And if you just look over, kind of look, look past my sin, you're not doing your duty. I mean, there are a few people that know me as well as you do. This is not the seminary's responsibility to approach me about my sin. It's not the church that I came from. It's not their responsibility, inner city. It's your responsibility. When you see that I am living in sin, unrepentant sin, false doctrine, whatever the case, then I should be challenged. But it should be done in a way that's in keeping with the principles of Scripture, and it should be done with impartiality with fairness. After all, you have a celestial audience watching your every move. The church has a responsibility to care for its pastor, and they do so by providing for him financially and for protecting him carefully. Let's pray. Probably thankful for the the way in which you have used faithful pastors in my life and in each of our lives to help strengthen our faith. It's amazing how, how much we need individual godly examples to follow. Sometimes we just need instruction. We don't know the best way to go. We need wisdom. And, and you have gifted um, various people for this kind of thing. Lord, I, I recognize that the end of all knowledge is not me. I recognize that I am not the, the uh, holiness in in complete perfection. And so everybody has to to kowtow to me. Um, but I do also recognize that your design has been for godly gifted men to lead the church. And Lord, for me to shrink from that and to abdicate my authority would be would be abusive. It would be another kind of abusive. Lord, help me to, um, to be the, the kind of leader that, that each of these people deserve. Or they need people to help them on to greater faith and greater holiness. And, and Lord, I, I feel so inadequate for the task, but I pray that you would give me wisdom and strength to be able to do this, to point them to the Scriptures and, and, um, and to live the Scriptures in front of them. And um, I pray that, that their response would be one that is godly as well, that they would fulfill their responsibility to, to care for, for me and, and to to handle my sin properly. And I pray that the result would be that we all would be grown up, growing up into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. That we would be putting every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That we would be growing in the knowledge of God and, and um, in all holiness. Lord, you help us to do that. Lord, strengthen us in our most holy faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.